Welcome to the Creative Brookline Podcast. My name is David, and I'll be your host. As an aspiring young journalist, I seek fascinating personal narratives that directly impact local communities. Therefore, I look to interview artistic collectives and individuals within the Brookline area. Through this series, I am exploring how a broad spectrum of expressive arts can create impact and opportunities in people's lives, as well as in a community overall. Author Melanie Conroy Goldman grew up in multiple neighborhoods around Boston, but says her time in Brooklyn was specifically impactful. Listen to how her personal experiences inspired The Likely World, Melanie's latest novel that focuses on a young girl navigating her life in a fantasy world. See, I just kind of want to start and get a feel for you and who you are, your work, and how long you would say you've been writing for, if you kind of remember when it all started. Writer, I guess. I mean, uh, I always wrote as a kid. I can remember writing stories when I was in third grade, but I didn't. I didn't think about being a writer. It was just something that I did. And then I was going to be a politician. That was my plan. I went to New Hampshire to campaign. I spent a month there in high school for a presidential campaign for a candidate called Paul Simon, who was unsuccessful, like many of the presidential candidates I've supported. And then at a certain point, I realized I didn't, I didn't want to be a politician because of the way that you have to control your public persona and the way that you have to follow a set of behavioral rules that to me didn't seem compatible with, with a normal and honest life. So I started writing in college and I didn't go directly to grad school, but I ended up in grad school after I did Teach for America in Compton, California. And then it was kind of a lot. That was what I was going to be doing for my life, whether anyone wanted to read it or not. And who are some of your biggest writing inspirations? I think that Toni Morrison is one of my biggest inspirations. It's interesting because a lot of people read Morrison for the ideas and the themes, which are all incredible and really important part of the cultural conversation. But she's also an amazing craftswoman. When I talk to my students, sometimes I say, you can do anything you want in writing. For example, if you want to have a flashback from a flashback, it's not against the rules to do that. If you want to have 40 characters in a novel, it's not against the rules to do that. But you probably have to be Toni Morrison to pull it off. That's what I go to Toni Morrison for. She does the impossible in her work. And I also think something people don't talk about as much with her work is that she is a practitioner of the fantastic, right? She's not in the realist tradition. And for maybe 20 years in American writing, the tradition that got the most attention was a realist tradition, a white tradition and a male tradition. And at the same time, during all of that, writers like Toni Morrison and Sandra Cisneros we're doing really things that didn't get stuck in being bound to reality. And I think that the mainstream of American letters has returned to that and realized how important and integral that part of the tradition has been. But for me, those kinds of voices have always been lodestone. Yeah, and I remember vividly reading Toni Morrison and those authors, even in high school. And they always pair, obviously, with the Harlem Renaissance or African literature, like those themes. But yeah, we don't really talk about those themes that you mentioned, which I think are more inherent to the literature side and really breaking down the content that these authors are producing. Yeah, and it's not in any way to diminish the thematics. Um, you know, Toni Morrison was talking about 
sexual assault and violence and the legacy of racism before it was part of the mainstream conversation. Her Thatcher forced it into the mainstream conversation when a lot of people wanted to look away. Those things are important. I, I just think that we also have to honor just an amazing sentence maker and plot maker and character builder. And I love her for that stuff. And do you have a type of literature that you typically go to or that you admire the most or try to recreate? I've always been a writer who tries to link up the literary with genre stuff. So I'm really interested in science fiction, the fantastic and magical realism. But a lot of the books that people are familiar with in science fiction and fantasy are authors who are producing, you know, seven volumes in seven years, and they don't pay attention to the sentence and the characters aren't necessarily people you can really see and connect with. So there are writers who do both and have done both for a long time. And I think of writers like Jeff Vandermeer and Liddy Yuknovich and Kelly Link and George Saunders. Those are all writers who are writing literary books that have ghosts and aliens and the fun stuff in them yeah totally George Saunders is definitely a big one for that yeah he's the best and he's funny you know and I think a lot of people forget that serious fiction meaty fiction can be hilarious but he's one of those ones who's just a master of that and what are some real life occurrences that you like to tie into your work either like historical or personal So there is a scene in my novel, which takes place right on the border between Brookline and the medical center. And the whole novel's kind of set in that area, right on that border. And the most important events take place there. And they're crossing this bridge and uh, the characters are talking about the violence that was associated with the Boston busing integration. And it, it so happens that my grandfather was an educator and a theorist of education and was involved in authoring that plan before his tragic demise. So I've read a lot and thought a lot about that experience. And there was a lot of violence. I mean, white mobs attacked Black people during that time. And I think New Englanders like to think of ourselves as immune to that kind of mass race violence, but we're not. So in the book, I talk about the bloodstains that are now invisible, but are still on a particular patch of sidewalk as a way of talking about how those legacies persist. So that's one example. But then the characters look Mm -hmm. over the bridge and they see bamboo growing there. Um, And so this is in the Fenway. And I don't know if you know this, but there really is bamboo growing in the Fenway. Have you ever seen that? I actually didn't know that, no. Yeah, it's weird, right? So it's not a bamboo climate. It's an invasive species. And it's there, as I understand it, because bamboo was used in packing crates during the spice trade, which was affiliated with the slave trade. And when that part of the Boston area was still more underwater, they used to dump the packing there and bamboo grew. So there's this plant, this invasive species, that's a legacy of this trade, right? So I like those kind of lines of physical manifestations that persist that in some ways represent the idea of how history leaves its legacy. Could you talk more about your direct ties to Brookline and the Boston area? 
I grew up in the in the greater Boston area, and um, I lived in a lot of different places. But I lived for a formative period of time in a basement apartment in Washington Square in Brookline, and a lot of my best friends were Brookline kids. And I think that I was thinking about why why did I set it in, in Brookline, right? I've lived in 17 different communities. I could have put it in Milton. The Milton novel has yet to be written, right? I could have put it in Somerville, where I lived for a long time and where my dad still lives. But somehow I gravitated towards Brookline and I thought, you know, people have one idea of what Brookline is. You know, it's a wealthy, safe, liberal suburb, right? But if you scratch any place below the surface, you find more complexity than any kind of popular idea of it. And because of Brookline's liberal tradition in the 80s and 90s, there was actually a lot of economic diversity in the town. There was really well-funded public housing. There was rent control. So even if the sort of typical Brookline person was someone who was well-to-do, there were a lot of people who were struggling. So that kind of idea of a place where the dominant culture is a culture of wealth, but there are lots of people there who don't participate in that culture was really interesting to me. And it kind of links up with that border idea, the idea that Brookline is sort of a suburb, but it's on the T and it's right next to Boston and it's right next to Mission Hill, which when I was growing up, had massive projects and lots of poverty and I lived there too. So the idea of this kind of space that somewhere else geographically would be an enclave, would be separated, but because of its physical location and because of the liberal ethos of the people who lived there and governed the town was actually much more diverse and permeable than people might imagine. So we've danced around it now, but let's actually get into it. So your book, The Likely World, that's what it's called, is coming out August 4th. So congrats, it's very exciting. And we kind of talked a little bit, you mentioned some of the concepts with Brookline and those areas. But when did this idea and the book, the formative ideas of the book kind of come into fruition? Like, where did it all start for you? Oh, it's so interesting. I can remember when I wrote the first lines because I was physically driving in the car, which is not safe and not recommend. (laughs) But I was in the car and I just heard the mother's voice, the narrator starting to talk. And she's a recovering addict. And, um, you know, she was barely sober as she started to speak. And I, again, not recommended, reached for the nearest piece of paper, which was one of my daughter's crayon drawings, turned it over, completely disrespectful to my child's artwork. And while I drove, I did not pull over. I just started writing the first lines. And those lines are still in the book. So that was the beginning. And then I think I just felt pressed to think about this strange time in adolescence and this this sort of 16-year-old cusp time between uh, where you're free enough to be an adult or to have adult responsibilities, but you just don't have the uh, you know frontal lobe development to make the good decisions about the things, the really hard decisions that you face about sexuality and substance and responsibility to your friends and family. So that's kind of where it started. And your main character's name is Nellie. Mm-hmm. And she's 16, as you mentioned. And what kind of struggles does she face throughout the novel? She starts out as kind of a nerdy good girl who has friends who are a little tougher, a little braver, and a little more risk-taking than she is. 
So they're getting involved with drugs and alcohol and they're exploring their sexuality in ways that are very pre-Me Too, right? Um, so there's no assault and there's no sexual assault in the novel, but I do explore a lot of gray territory, right? Where consent isn't asked for and it isn't given and the, and the characters who engage in this kind of sexuality end up with regrets. Those are the kind of struggles she faces because she wants to grow up, because she just wants to be cool. Like every teenager, she starts to explore those things that she's really not ready for and doesn't have the resources to process the consequences. So she turns to this drug that's at the center of the novel. And then I was going to ask, what are some of the social issues that you bring up? Because we talked to you how some of this could tie into older periods, but you seem to also tie it into a modern area. So talk a little bit about that. The through line of the novel deals with the fallout from adolescent sexuality as it happened in the 80s, which is to say that in this sort of murky consent area. And starting from there, Melly, the main character, ends up involved with a violent boyfriend. And then eventually, by the time she's an adult, she's working on the fringes of the pornography industry. She's not a porn actor. She's in post-production, but she's right there kind of looking in on the our culture's ultimate sexual exploitation. And then the novel also deals with addiction because several of the characters are addicted to this fictional drug called Cloud, which erases regret, which is a feeling that a lot of the characters have because of the choices that they make by eliminating short-term memory but over long periods of time, ultimately fragment the mind in ways that make it so that uh, long-term addicts don't remember much of their lives and much of their experience. And the question is then, to what extent are they really themselves if they've erased all of these critical experiences that they've had? That's a really cool concept. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, very creative. Yeah. And I think that's a really cool balance that you have with adolescence and drugs because that is such a huge issue and that has been an issue for so long you know and so many people deal with those things and as I was reading the description of the book too and a few of the passages um, it kind of came to me and I wonder what you would say about this do you consider this story like a coming of age story you know what I might almost say is that it's a failure to come of age story so I think of the book as operating around a speculative engine I wrote it with what if as its central question, right? What if this drug existed? What if someone very much like me made a set of much worse choices than I did? I turned out okay, right? Uh, where would that end up? So I think that we all have bad experiences, right? And a lot of people experience trauma. And of course, everybody has this fantasy when something bad happens to you, or even when you're, you're just not behaving in the way that you want. You know, you're obsessing about an ex, something very ordinary, right? Or uh, you're thinking too much about a mistake you made. We just wish we could take that part of our brain out. Like, it's just a thought. Why don't we just get rid of that idea, right? And I think there's a very common set of thoughts to have. And so I started to think, well, what if we could do that? What if you could just pop a pill and whatever bad thing you're thinking about went away? Who would we be then? Would we even really be people, right? And so some of the characters really have this sense that part of themselves is missing, that there is a real self out there that they can't connect with because they've erased their memories. And there's a set of characters who are 
maybe secondary characters or tertiary characters who don't even really have selves because they've erased too much of these traumatic memories. And I'm curious, so you had a little trouble labeling the book at first from what I understood too, and then you came to this term of a speculative memoir. So how did that kind of come to be? I wrote the book using the same discipline that a lot of people use to write nonfiction. I've been doing these story slams and story slams are five minute storytelling competition. A lot of people know them from the moth and you have to tell the truth which I was really bad at. I'm really a fiction writer. And so I would always just kind of bend the truth a little bit. But I loved the practice of mining your memories and this kind of incredible magic that happens. We just start to write about a childhood experience. You think you remember a birthday party. You know, they sang, you look like a monkey and you smell like one too. But you think that's your whole memory. And then you start to write about it and just all of a sudden, you get the faces and the names of the kids who were at the party. You remember what kind of cake you had, what embarrassing things your parents did. And it's just amazing that the memory works that way. So I would do that at kind of at the beginning of each new section. I would go back, okay, what's a real thing that happened? Let me situate myself in a memory. And then I just let it veer off. So I use this memoir practice and then this speculative engine. So what really happened? And then what if something else happened? What if there were a fictional drug that the characters became addicted to? What if you could erase your own memory? What if every choice I made turned out badly, the worst possible way? And so that's kind of where the speculative memoir label comes from. Honestly, that's how I wrote it. I don't know if it really is that in the end, but it was an interesting way of kind of thinking through Um, how to write this book. And how much of your own life would you say is impacted in the book? It's impossible to pick back out, right? So I worked with real material, but I changed it uh, over the course of, I'd probably say 15 complete revisions. I changed it to make the story work. And that's kind of why I'm hesitant to say, even though I tried to write a speculative memoir, that that's how it ended up. But there's stuff in there. I went through my old adolescent diaries and there's a whole passage that I just ripped from my own adolescent diaries. And I call those found texts. There are whole passages that are representations of real radio programs. So I've changed the words a bit, but it, you know, I was listening to a Glenn Beck show late at night, who's a conservative talk show host. And I credit him in the book because he inspired this passage and it just stuck with me. So as much as possible, I put a version of that in. What other um, specific influences from the Brookline area did you incorporate? Oh, so it's so interesting. I mean, there's lots of real places in there. You know, they drive around Beacon Street. They hang out in Coolidge Corner. They go to the Cleveland Circle Cinema. And it's a a very Brookline story. You know, there's the street where my best friend lived across from the Runkle School. And I describe that view of the playground from her house. And, you know, I talk about Brookline architecture. It couldn't be a more Brookline novel, to be honest. It must be exciting to work with the area then and be able to do a talk in the area too. Oh yeah, I'm really excited to work at the Booksmith, to read with them virtually. 
because that was the bookstore when I was living there. And it's such a great books bookstore. It has this great history for me. I think probably a lot of people know it used to be called the paperback booksmith because they were one of the first booksellers that felt like, hey, paperbacks are worth reading. And this is back in the day when those genre books, right, those more popular books were kind of poo-pooed or only sold in supermarket checkout lines. So for me, for someone who kind of puts together this popular tradition and this literary tradition, Booksmith's place in that story is really important. I'm curious to know what your response has been to some of the accolades you've gotten for um, The Likely Worlds. Like I was looking through and I found this one review from another New York Times bestseller. Um, She said, move over Margaret Atwood. This book flips the woman's script. And I was like, that's so cool because I've read Margaret Atwood too. And I absolutely love her writing. And I was, I was like, I wonder how you would respond to getting that kind of, you know, accolade. Like that's really big. Yeah. My response is exactly like yours. That's so cool. (laughs) I mean, honestly, having anyone read my book is amazing. I am so excited. A few people are reading advanced readers copies already, even though it's not out. And every time I see that a stranger has read my book and liked it, I am super excited. And honestly, I'm super excited that my best friend read it and called me and told me about it. So to have someone like Lydia Yuknovich, who I really admire, say that she likes the book or to compare it to Margaret Atwood, I mean, I feel humbled. And I feel uh, like this can't possibly be happening to me. And it's amazing. And I just feel so grateful to every reader who reads the book and tells me about it. How is this novel different from some of your other work or how is it similar? This memoir thing is new for me. So integrating real life passages and found texts isn't something that I've done. I've really been, I've operated in the purely fictional realm. So that's different. And it, it was interesting. I don't know if I would try it again. There are things I learned from the practice, but also ways in which that was right for this book. And the book I'm working on now needs another kind of craft. But I've always been really interested in feminism and in the way that our culture acculturates young women into womanhood and how many ways in which that's bad. So, you know, a friend of mine reading the book said that she felt like, I wrote about female sexuality in a way that was much more descriptive and honest than is typical. And I think I did try to do that just to represent young women. We talk about, you know, helping them say no and helping them give consent. But I don't think we have any way to talk about young women or young men about like what it's like to feel desire. And what do you do if you're 16 years old and you're just thirsty, right? What do you make of that experience? How do you navigate that? And I can remember being absorbed by those powerful feelings myself and thinking, you know, what is consent in this moment? I'm so overwhelmed and so powerful. How do I not do this? Even if there's a little voice in my head telling me that this isn't right, or how do I do it and make sure I'm safe? And I just don't think we have those conversations. So I think I've always been thinking about that kind of thing, desire in a culture that doesn't really know how to talk about or advise about consent. So we mentioned the talk that you're having with Brookline Booksmith, which is coming up on August 13th. 
So what are some of the things that people can expect from this talk that you're giving? Well, first of all, I'm sharing the billing with a terrific writer named Elizabeth Kadetsky, who's bringing out a book called The Memory Eaters. And The Memory Eaters is a memoir. And it's really interesting because both of our books deal with memory in really different ways. But they're both about missing memories and the consequences of that. So I think, I think it'll be fun to see a nonfiction writer and a fiction writer talking about the same topics and there's some really interesting interaction. So I'm really excited to be reading with her because this is a great book. So each of us will read a short passage and then we'll have a Q&A and I think the conversation will be pretty cool. And do you normally do a lot of community events like this? You mentioned something earlier about these story slams that you've done as well. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm doing a very limited number of them for this book. I'm trying to keep it to one per community. So I have a New York one, and I have a Boston area one, which is the Brookline one, and then I have a Cape Cod one and a West Coast one, because that's the tour, I guess. <laughs> the coronavirus version of the tour is a lot of Zooming. But yeah, I love to be in front of an audience, whether it's live or virtual. I love to share my work with people and I have a lot of fun talking. So yeah, I do these story slams, these live story slams. I do comedy. I do stand up comedy, which is weird, but really fun. Yeah. And so now readings, which will be fun. And how have you seen the impact your work has had on your readers? It remains to be seen in some ways, but the most rewarding part of the whole thing for me has been having just the few people who've gotten to read the book so far tell me what they saw in it. And sometimes it's nothing like what I thought I was writing. Sometimes they see things that I had no idea were there and that may not be there for another reader. And I think that's the magic of writing and the communication between a reader and a writer is that the book is a huge X factor, right? So every person takes a different thing from it. And the writer isn't always the best judge of what's inside of it. So it's, it's great to hear what people say. And then how would you say the Brookline community has impacted your work? So I'm still in touch with the people I grew up with. And I'm not young, so those are some long friendships. I was Zooming last night with two of my Brookline friends. And they're friends from high school. They're kids I was hanging around with back in the day. And I don't know why. And I don't even know if this reflects well on me, but there is absolutely no one like the people I knew growing up in my world. And I have new friendships and other people. There's something about that deep historical connection about the culture you share with other teenagers when you are a teenager that's just not replicatable. And we were in that microculture of Brookline of like, the weirdo kind of poor kids in Brookline. And I think of it as a microculture. And my third friend who was on the Zoom call was from Concord, totally different, <laughs> but not really. Like we were similar, but the funny thing is she married a kid from Brookline that she met through us. So <laughs> the one non-Brookline person in the bunch is actually like Brookline by marriage. <laughs> yeah, Brookline by association. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what about your family? Like, what kind of impact have they had on your work? Because this work, from what I was reading, too, there seems to be a lot of connections with your grandfather, like you mentioned, and even your mother. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm really close to my family and my mother is a writer and my father's a technical writer. So they're both word people. And, you know, they gave me the incredible gift of thinking that writing was a legitimate career path. It, it was an enormous gift for me spiritually, financially, not so much, right? <laughs> I wish they told me, sometimes I wish they'd told me to go get a, um, to become a certified public accountant. But they thought art was a serious path. They took me seriously. They supported me all the way through. And they also just filled my house with books. You know, my mom was into serious literature and she was an English major. And so there was always Shakespeare and actually Mary Gateskill, who blurbed my book. I first read her by stealing her a paperback of hers off my mom's shelf. And then my dad had all the sci-fi, like all the great 1960s science fiction and fantasy. And so basically you put those two traditions together and that is how I became the writer I became. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the state of literature and reading books now. It's almost, it's almost like a dying art in a way because people aren't really buying physical books anymore. Like I think reading, reading itself will always be a practice but literature itself is kind of a different being. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm not interested in hand-wringing about the state of literature. I mean, in some ways, the written word is more important and more a medium of exchange than ever has been. Even if it's happening over Twitter or it's happening by a blog post or it's happening because someone reposts something. Even memes right? Memes are basically language. It's an image. And then you make a meme into something funny by replacing the words or putting a new title on it. And so I think that the life of language is rich. I also think that people continue to read and they continue to read novels. I prefer paper books, but that's just because I'm elderly. <laughs> but if someone likes to consume a book on a tablet, I think that's fine. There are advantages to it. You're reading a book on a tablet, you don't know a word or you're looking for a reference, it's right there. You can follow it up, you can dig deeper. And then I think also it's really about telling stories. And we're telling stories in brand new ways right now. You know, like a podcast is a new way of telling a story. It uses new tools, not just words, but actors. It's collaborative. It uses post-production sounds. So there's all these new tools. I think that people are always going to take whatever medium is there and push it to its limit and do cool stuff with it. Even if I write in a form that is a book and people, and I prefer to read in the form of a book, I'm not mourning because I think we'll be telling stories in new cool ways forever. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. I noticed also that you have some volunteer experience at a prison. <laughs> so what's that kind of been like? So yeah, at a maximum security men's prison, I taught creative writing for two semesters. And uh, people don't believe me when I tell them this, but it was so fun. There was like a sort of undertone of horror, of course, because you're in a terrible place and there is this kind of texture of suffering that's everywhere. But my students were the greatest, most enthusiastic, talented people. We laughed nonstop for three straight hours and we just enjoyed it. You know, it was delightful teaching there. And I'm told by people who do it for a long time that 
that delight doesn't go away, but that it becomes harder to filter out the darkness, which really is inevitably pre present. But, you know, one thing you walk away with is these people are incarcerated. They have, many of them, done terrible things, but it restores your faith in humanity, that you can hang out with people under such dark circumstances who've had such darkness in their past and come together and really be a community for that space of time. And how about what's it been like being a professor and also working as an author? I love students and I'm an extrovert um, and writing is not an extrovert's gig. So for me, the balance of teaching and connecting with students has always been really important to me. And I learn stuff because my students ask me questions about writing and I think, I just don't know the answer to that. I mean, I have been writing for a long time, but it's an infinite task and an infinite craft and students want things that I've never thought of. And so I learned from them too. And they write things that surprise me and that I never would have written and that are sometimes really incredible. And have your daughters expressed any interest in picking up writing or have shown any talents? <laughs> Sadly, yes. Sadly. <laughs> You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's great. So my middle girl is very focused and she's definitely a leader and she volunteers at a legal aid clinic and she's not attracted to the writing life. But the older one and the younger one are both really into it. You know, the older one has won some prizes and published already and stuff like that. So it's really great even if I wish that they had just instead developed a passion for insurance adjustment or financial management, you know, something that's a little easier to break into. Mm -hmm. Like anything but what mom does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What were your top four picks for novels? I don't know if you ever heard of the term, your Rushmore. Um, it means like your top four, like if you had to choose four novels to be stuck with, what would they be? Okay, so I really like uh, Rachel Kushner's The Mars Room. That's a really great book. Um, my friend Leslie Genorio is a hilarious writer, and he just published a book about a Filipino immigrant named Excel, like the spreadsheet, who discovers that he's undocumented, and his mom is a former B-movie actress, scam artist, and martial artist. So it's a really heartfelt book and it cracks you up. So it would be a good companion on a desert island or I'd put that face on Rushmore. I really love Karen Russell's St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves. It's got lots of different little stories in it. So that's really wonderful. And so there's a, a great book by Norman Rush called Mating that I have lived with for a long time. It's about an anthropologist in Africa and it ends up talking about the complexities of aid work and the kind of idea of whiteness in Africa and how it operates and how Americans operate there. But it's also just a really weird out of the box love story. So it's one of my favorites. That's awesome. Yeah. And last question, would you ever want one of your books or works made into a film? Heck yeah. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah, I'd love it. I, I'd love it. And I don't know, I like, I picture scenes sometimes, you know, so it's fun to think about a visual component. And then plus in the, in the age of Zoom, I've had to produce a lot of things like movie trailers and visual um, companions, 
to work. And it's just really interesting to see what happens to writing when you filter it through a new medium. So yeah, I'd love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Anyone you'd want it to direct it? <laughs> Definitely a woman. Yeah, so maybe a woman of color. I think it could be told as a love story. And I think maybe a woman director would notice the things that aren't love story-ish mm. about it. Thanks for listening. Be on the lookout for more episodes in the future. This episode of Creative Brookline was hosted by David Ciaffarelli and featured Melanie Conroy-Goldman. Sound engineering and editing by David Ciaffarelli with music by Aleta Stein. This podcast is produced through Brookline Interactive Group, a community media center located in Brookline, Massachusetts. Creative Brookline is a direct product of BIG's internship and media programs. For more information about BIG's programs, visit brooklineinteractive.org.